Oi! No fighting. No fucking fighting. No fighting. No fucking fighting! Good. Next one up, June 9th through the 11th, with a few spots left, then August 11th through the 13th, then October 13th through the 15th. We do have a brand new camp on the list. First time we're actually offering this. I've talked about it before. I'm talking about it again. This is a workshop for personal trainers. This is to... Uh, teach and coach personal trainers on the starting strength method. Rip is coming down to starting strength Plano in Plano, Texas. This is going to be an eight-hour camp. It's going to talk about philosophy, the methodology, the tie-ins to your own personal training business. And if you're a personal trainer with an active certification, you can get $100 off of this. And it'll finish with the participants coaching and teaching each other through the deadlift. Still have some spots left for our two-day camp, Lift, Shoot, Fight. That's July 8th through the 9th in Wichita Falls, covering lifting, shooting, and some combatives. We've added a press and bench press camp to the list. That's September 23rd on Long Island. A couple deadlift and power clean camps going on. One in Tel Aviv, Israel on June 24th, and one on Long Island on July 15th. Still some spots left for some squat and deadlift camps going on. At the time of this recording, Chicago still has some spots left. That's May 21st at Starting Strength Chicago. Cincinnati, June 17th at Starting Strength Cincinnati. Singapore on June 18th at Hygieia Strength and Conditioning. Phoenix, Arizona at Weights and Plates on June 24th. And Indianapolis at Starting Strength Indianapolis on July 15th. Then a few three-lift camps covering the squat, the press, and the deadlift. Brussels Barbell in Brussels, Belgium on July 22nd. Then a couple camps in Canada, in Vancouver on July 29th and July 30th. Continue to announce new gyms and continue to need talent to coach in those gyms. So if you're interested in becoming a coach, head over to startingstrengthgyms.com. Check out the coaching tab, see what the criteria are, fill out the form. Maybe you get to talk to the Ukrainian freight train herself, Miss Ina Kapel or Ina Koppel, and make a new friend. So check that out, and as usual, for more information on anything that I've talked about, head over to StarringStrength.com and check out the right-hand side of the homepage. From the Asgard Company Studios in beautiful Wichita Falls, Texas, from the finest mind in the modern fitness industry, the one true voice in the strength and conditioning profession, the most important podcast on the Internet, ladies and gentlemen, starting Strength Radio. Welcome back to Starting Strength Radio. Uh, we're happy to be here again with our friend Malcolm Kendrick. Malcolm is uh, a doctor in the UK, and uh, he has been on the show a couple of times previously, and we've talked about all kinds of interesting things that lots of people don't want to discuss. And the, uh, the thing we like about Malcolm is he's not afraid to go where he's not supposed to go. And uh, this occasionally gets Malcolm in trouble, <laughs> if you can imagine that. And uh, uh, Malcolm, tell us uh, about what is going on right now. I, I hear through the grapevine that you are in the middle of a libel suit with a media company in the UK, people that publish the Daily Mail and uh, Mail on Sunday, I think, is the other paper. And as a big media company in the UK, we see them here on on our aggregators all of the time. 
it's it's probably hard for people in the UK to understand that we look at the Guardian and the Daily Mail every day. There are stories from both of those outlets on our news aggregators here in the in the United States. So we're familiar with the with the media company, but you guys, you're having some problems with these people, and and you and I've talked about this before. We've talked about. Um, you know, the subject of all of your books, which is cholesterol is the source of heart disease and saturated fat, of course, is deadly poison and and that statins ought to be in the water supply and all of this conventional wisdom bullshit that is um, just the gospel in all of the corporate media all over the world. And... Uh, um, Back in 2019, you apparently got some shit on your shoes, didn't you? What happened? Well, an article came out in the mail on Sunday. Uh, was it March the 2nd, I think? Or maybe it wasn't. But it was March the something, 2019. Uh, two related articles. Um, um, with the first one claiming that I, I and two others um, was a statin denier. In a, uh, whatever that means uh, denialism I well that's that's that the term is used because of its association with the holocaust if you are a holocaust denier you apparently can be taken out and executed in some european countries so denialism is used to tar the opinion that's all it's for oh yeah well i mean it's the same as calling, you know, saying someone's a conspiracy theorist. It's just sort of, we're not going to listen to anything you say because you're right. a, you're one of these people. You're one but, of these um, people. Yeah. Uh, so essentially, because I've criticized the cholesterol hypothesis in great depth and great length, and, and because I say that statins are, are not the wonder drugs that they're promoted to be, that the benefits that they have are overhyped, and the... Um, the downsides and the potential adverse effects uh, affect more people more severely than than is generally promoted. Right. Uh, and because of this, apparently, a lot of people have stopped taking their statins, and therefore I am responsible, or we were responsible for thousands, potentially hundreds of thousands of deaths around, potentially around the millions. world. Potentially well, uh, millions. Potentially millions. Billions, probably. Billions, billions. Of potentially. <laughs> if, if anyone picked it up in another planet somewhere in the universe oh god no no they would die as well so yeah i mean and the other article uh was was related it was about talking about a patient who stopped taking their statins and had a heart attack and the title of that was there there is a special place in hell for people who criticize statins or worse than that effect um so, so you know it was pretty much the full the full whammy, as they say, oh, killing yeah. thousands—a denier. Well, you're just a, you know. you're a, a, you're just a, you're you're a genocidal. You're guilty of genocidalism. Yeah, well, yeah. Me, me, me and Vladimir Putin, we we like to kill a few thousand before breakfast, and a few Absolutely. more thousand afterwards. Both you guys are the devil incarnate. Yeah, uh, I wonder. So, uh, you you probably know this. So, just off the top of my head. What is, how often does a person who is on a statin drug, who's taking Lipitor, for example, how often does that person actually die? Uh, 
I mean, these people do die, don't they? Well, well, uh, 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 the facetious answer is everybody dies in the end. Well, you know, um, that's an inconvenient. I mean, you know, we don't want to go there. But I, I, you know, if if you are on a statin drug, are you guaranteed to be alive for the rest of your life? Uh, well, well, I guess you are. But well, no, no, hold on. That's that's a logical imperative. You're 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 all you are guaranteed to be alive for the rest of your life. Um, that's that, that goes with the territory. But I know what you mean. Here's the. If I can try and give you the answer statistically, people love statistics. It means that they can go to sleep gently and forget everything else. <laughs> but um, the the advert in the states they they advertise, let's say Lipitor, or did advertise it. It's now off patent. But one of the adverts stated that Lipitor prevents, uh, sorry, reduces the risk of heart attack by forty six percent. That was the advert. That was basically <laughs> advert. <laughs> Upon which the drug became oh, the world's that's... biggest ever selling drug. All right, God. and then you say, right, well, that forty-six percent figure is actually true, sort of. Uh, the trouble is, we don't have words for things that are, in in one very, very, very narrow sense, correct, but in all other senses, are just absolute rubbish. So, and this is. <laughs> Our language is not very good for this. It's, it's true I, or false. What we're talking you about see, here is relative risk versus absolute yes. risk. And we're also talking relative risk of heart attack. Now, most people think, oh, well, so I'm 50% less likely to have a heart attack. Therefore, I'm 50% less likely to die. Now, you go, well, if you look at the study that came from the Accord study, um, well, actually, if you look at the number of heart attacks, I can't remember the exact figures, but I mean, this study was like 20,000 people over five years. And the total number of heart attacks in the placebo group was for it. I'm, I'm making this up because I can't remember the exact figures, right. but I'm not really far no, we off. Understand. Like, it, was, it was like 110. And the total number of heart attacks in the in the statin group there was, was, say, 64. And that's out of 9,000 people. All right. So actually, yes, the difference between 110 and 64 Maybe I'll have to rejig my figures and say 46%. So you can say, yes, it was a 40% reduction in relative reduction risk. The absolute reduction was was 1.1% over this clinical trial. But the other thing is, of course, not all heart attacks are fatal. Some heart attacks are actually incredibly minor things where yeah. the person sits no symptoms, but a level of an enzyme might go up. And then say, oh, the level of the enzyme went up, suggesting you've had a heart attack. They go, well, I didn't notice anything. So, well, that was a heart attack, right? Or a myocardial infarction. So heart attacks vary from killing you to you didn't even know it happened. Sleeping. But they all, get bundled, they all get bundled together in, in the same thing. But when, when you look at the statistics, again, we'll say, well, how many people, what was the difference between the deaths from heart attacks in the statin group and the placebo group? The answer was there was no difference. None. So the same number of people died. And when you look at overall mortality, in other words, living, which is kind of the most important outcome, what was the difference in overall mortality? There was no change in overall mortality. So this 46% figure, which sounds amazing. I mean, why wouldn't you take something that reduces your risk by 46%? That would be mad not to. So well, what was the difference in your chances of, as you say, living? Well, there's no difference in life expectancy no difference in the expectancy of dying of a heart attack. And yet, that fact is still true, but true but meaningless. And that's meaningless. the problem with that. And, but uh, meaningless, uh, but useful. 
useful, obviously. Useful. Uh, and so you do find that, you know, when you look at the figures and the statistics, and we always go, a friend, a good friend of mine from the States called D- David Diamond, Dr. David Diamond, he's not an MD, but he is a, he is a very clever guy and a researcher. I've just written a paper, it's been published two weeks ago, looking at the use of relative risk in cholesterol-lowering trials. He's not just looked at statins, he's looked at the ones that came before statins, mm-hmm. he's looked at the ones that have now come after statins. And, and the same game is played. They mention relative risk. They don't mention absolute risk ever. And then they start jumping up and down going how wonderful it was. I mean, the, the original the, uh, clofibrate was the first successful, inverted commas, cholesterol-lowering drug, which came out in about the 19, late 1960s, early 1970s. And, and they did a study, and it was all wonderful and marvelous, and look at how many people it saved, and look at the re, re, look at the risk reduction, which I think was 24%. The absolute risk reduction was, was so small, it was, it, was, it, was, it was just infinitesimal. So they've used this game on everything. So the, the latest yeah. the yeah. latest cholesterol-lowering agents are called PCSK9 inhibitors. I can never remember what it stands for, but something like polycringle something, something. Anyway, they lower cholesterol more than um, more than statins they're almost I mean getting close to zero if you like for the LDL in some cases but you just almost can't see that there's any any LDL and and uh, the first of these to come out was, was called Ripath that was the name of it um, and it was a Fourier it was called the study was called the Fourier study and it was presented as absolutely marvelous fantastic we need to have this stuff now when you looked at the statistics which again I have this terrible tendency to do they they claimed there was a something like a 36% reduction in, in this and a 20% reduction in that. When it came to cardiovascular mortality, there were slightly more people died from cardiovascular disease in the treatment group. In the treatment group. And there were an increased number of deaths in the treatment group. There were not huge figures. It was like a difference of about six or seven people. But you'd think if you're giving a drug that reduces the LDL to virtually gone, you, you proved the hypothesis that lowering it makes no bloody difference whatsoever. Oh, but of man, course, a, what... this is so crazy. People actually believe at this point that LDL is a deadly poison, <laughs> and I mean it's you know it's there, and it's supposed to be there, and yet. We are trying to figure out a way to eliminate it from our blood. <laughs> I, I what craven dogs these pharmaceutical people must be. Now they've got something they can sell us. Yes, and uh, well, it, it, and we'll uh, just take it because we're uneducated. That's what it boils down to. Well, I think that, that you know you can't expect the average person on the street to go into it like I've gone into it. It's just not no, going to happen. No. And so when, when everybody, when all the doctors, when all the adverts, when all the experts, when all the guidelines, when everything comes out saying cholesterol causes heart disease and you must lower it as much as possible, that, that you know, it's repeated often enough. People, I can understand that the average person on the street goes, well, obviously I should be, I should be taking this. Um, and it's and it sounds very convincing, and people are convinced, and ninety nine percent of doctors are convinced because they never read the research anyway. No, 
they no, do what they're told. Right. And uh, and that, that's the reality of the situation. So it's, um, you know, how does it change? How does it change? Well, well, obviously, then you have a situation where I say, you know, statins are not as effective as, as they are made out to be. And that they have more adverse effects than they're generally credited to have. Um, and and I get attacked. Now that okay, that that I was expecting it, um, sort of, because I I know a lot of people around the world who've also had precisely the same attacks made on them um, over the years. I mean, I can you know my a mentor or somebody I found out about when I was first thinking I'm the only person in the world who doesn't think that cholesterol causes heart disease. Um, Uffe Ravniskov, who lives in Sweden, a very 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 fantastic guy had written a book called The Cholesterol Myths. Um, and his book was was literally burned live on air in a TV studio in Finland. They <laughs> burnt his book. <laughs> that's, that's amazing. That is absolutely amazing. They want you to think in a way so badly that they will do a book burning yeah. on the air. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, this is... I know. Well, it, it, I mean, it, there's a guy, in this, there's a man in the States called Kilmer McCulley. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. No. Um, he, he was the first man to suggest that uh, a protein called homocysteine uh, caused heart disease. Um, and he was doing research on this at Harvard um, in the 70s. Uh, and of course, he then fell foul of the cholesterol mafia. Um, Harvard got rid of him. Now, not only did they get rid of him, but this was actually published in the New York Times, by the way, believe it or not, um, whereby Harvard, when he went for interviews at other universities, Harvard, whoever it was at Harvard, phoned up the universities and said, do not employ this map. They actually they, followed him around. They blackballed sure him. He could never get a job anywhere else. Well, that did change, and he's now recognized as being the man who discovered homocysteine as being a potential cause of heart disease. But he had a, a, a terrible time. Um, uh, as a, there's an Australian, uh, um, she was a journalist, she's got a PhD. Uh, in, she did two programs in 2013. Um, I, I helped her on these programs, giving her advice. Marianne Demassi is her name. You may have, may not have heard of her. And uh, uh, she did, there's a thing called Catalyst. I don't know what the alternative is, it's a PBS type thing in the States. Scientific-y for a fairly, you know, rarefied audience. But anyway, the two programs, the first one was saying that saturated fat doesn't cause heart disease. Uh, and the second program said that statins are not as brilliant as we think they are and might have more adverse effects. And and that was for the Australian Broadcasting uh, Corporation, ABC. And she was then ruthlessly attacked. She lost her job. They also tried to say that her PhD was falsified and she should lose her PhD. Oh, my God. All right. And they tried to basically absolutely get, absolutely crush her. And uh, she's... Still, right. She, if you look her up, she does brilliant stuff on as it Substack and, and and has written in very high level journals, all sorts of things. 
really bright and, and give brave. Us, give us her lady. name again so that the Marianne, M-A-R-Y-A-N-N-E, Damasi, D-E-M-A-S-I. And she's a really, really brave woman. I mean, I, I did say to her after these programs when they came out, I wrote her an email, which I still have a copy of, saying, you know, Marianne, well done. I, I said, unwisely, I said, I hope they come after you because this will prove that you're right, all right? All right. And they did come after her, and, and she wrote to me saying, I'm being hounded and attacked. What can I do? Help. Um, oh, God. Uh, so so she, she was another one. I mean, if you go back, the very earliest attack was on, um, um, because the man who started the whole cholesterol, well, didn't start it, but the man who was most associated with it was um, Ansel Keys. Ansel Keys. Uh, what an interesting effect yeah. this charlatan has had with his seven nations study nonsense that whole uh, you yeah. and i have spoken about this on the podcast before and it's uh the man is is uh remarkable in terms yeah. of the effect that he has had with absolute bullshit yeah, his his seven nation study was a was a classic example of something that should never have gotten past the peer review process, and this it, the fact that that study was published in Diet's peer review as much as anything uh, well, else. Look, you're speaking to a man who believes the peer review system is the greatest barrier to scientific research fact, it is. that has ever been created. In fact, but, um, it is. No, I mean, Ansel Keys. Um, well, he's the man that did a study uh, called the Minnesota Coronary Experiment from 1968 to 1973. Uh, he ran it on about 10,000 people looking at using um, uh, polyunsaturated fats to lower, to lower cholesterol and reduce the risk of heart disease. And uh, uh, the study showed that, yes, polyunsaturated fats, vegetable oils is a reason Anyway, that gets very complicated scientifically. But they did lower the cholesterol level using polyunsaturated fat instead of saturated fat. What they found was that the more that the cholesterol level fell, the higher the mortality rate. Yes. Right? And, and now, that mortality data on cholesterol levels is, uh, is the most damning nail in the coffin of this whole theory. Yeah. People do not understand this because it has never been presented to them. There is a clear reverse bell curve in total cholesterol and mortality. The yes. In, in, I would say the one corollary to that is after the age of about 55. Yes. Up to that age, it's slightly, it, well, it's irrelevant really, but after 55 or 60, you want, the higher your cholesterol is, the longer you will live. Full stop. Uh, yes. Never, never, never shown anything different in any study, and there have been hundreds. But the other interesting, going back to Ansel Keys and his study, was that study never got published. That study was suppressed and silenced, and it was only published in nine, 2016 <laughs> when a group of researchers found the original data sitting in the garage of the son of the other investigator. And they pulled it off the magnetic disks and got it out, and then, hey ho! So it was suppressed. But Ansel Keys, there was a, there was a, a researcher in England called John Yudkin, who uh, was a professor in 
nutritional science, and he wrote a book called Pure White and Deadly in 1970-something. And that book said it's nothing to do with cholesterol. It is all to do with sugar. Yeah. The pure white and deadly, not being cocaine, but sugar. Right. And he was ruthlessly attacked. His entire reputation shredded by Ansel Keys. I well, mean, I, I can give you example after example. If you, you know, so why, what, why, why was I attacked by these by the journal? Why was I attacked by Associated Newspapers? Because I am another person. If you get enough headway and you're making enough noise, that you become a danger. The next thing that happens to you is you are ruthlessly attacked. And this has happened. Michel de Logerol, the man who actually did the Leon, you know, the Leon's Hartel study, which was the first one to look at Mediterranean diet, showing that it was beneficial. Um, it's very well renowned around the, around the, the cardiovascular world. Uh, and he's a professor in France. And he got accused of killing thousands of people because he suggested that cholesterol did not cause, or LDL did not cause heart disease. And it's like a professor of cardiology who ran one of the landmark studies in um, in this area. In fact, the, another chap, I've got his book, cost me about 50 quid for a book about this thing. Anyway, George <laughs> Matt, he set up the, he was one of the original researchers with the Framingham study. And he came to the conclusion that the idea of, saturated fat and cholesterol being damaging was wrong and in fact he set up a thing called the Veritas Society and he tried to have a meeting and basically was warned off and everybody that was trying to come to the meeting was warned off and told not to go to it um, and he uh, was up here somewhere he he absolutely was attacked again and I think he was the first person that I'm aware of to be ruthlessly attacked for suggesting that Cholesterol was not a cause of heart disease, and he he went he went he went to visit the Maasai villagers in Kenya, right. who have the highest saturated fat diet in the world at the time. They ate no vegetables. They only ate meat and drank milk and drank blood from their cows. This was their diet because right. it was considered a Maasai man had to be strong and virile, and you didn't want any nasty vegetables. Um, so they had the highest cholesterol and saturated fat diet in the world, and they had no cases that he could find of cardiovascular disease at all, ever. <laughs> so he kind of not unnaturally went, um, maybe this hypothesis is perhaps just not correct. Well, and the polar Eskimo diet, you know, that's a that's another inconvenient thing uh, as well. Exactly. Yeah. Now, I, I think I've mentioned this guy to you um in one of our previous discussions about this, there was a guy by the name of Chris Mudd who privately published a little pamphlet. Um, uh, and I've got, I think I've still got that on one of my shelves. It was a, it had a yellow cover. It was cholesterol in your heart or cholesterol in your health. And this was the first guy I had ever run into that, that questioned the cholesterol hypothesis. And he said all of the same things that you guys are saying. And this was in 1986, probably. 1986. This guy was an animal health guy up in Oklahoma. And I have since tried to find him, and I can't find him. I can't find a reference to him anywhere on the Internet. 
he was a little older than I was, and he may be in his 80s now. But uh, I talked to him on the phone two or three times because I just I, I do that kind of thing. The guy said uh, interesting things, and I called him up, and I said, you know, why don't you uh, – uh, why don't you let me, because I wasn't, ha- oh, I remember now. I was not happy with the way the book was arranged. He did not uh, front his thesis on in the, in the early part of the preface or anything like that. You had to get to the last chapter before you figured out that what this guy was actually saying was exactly what you were saying, is there's no evidence that cholesterol does anything bad to anybody unless you're, you know, in four digits. You know, there's no evidence that saturated fat, dietary saturated fat, causes any problems at all. There's no evidence that lowering cholesterol improves health. None of these things, there's no evidence for them. But he waited till way late in the pamphlet before he talked about that. And I actually, I said, why don't you let me rewrite this for you? I think we can make a much more compelling case if you present the thesis, the thesis up front, like an abstract, and there wasn't that wasn't done. And he laughed about it and said, "Well, you know, let me think about that." And I never, uh, I hadn't heard from him since. I don't know what happened to him. I've tried to find him several times because I wanted to talk to him about the aftermath of his publication because that's the first thing I'd ever seen that openly questioned the cholesterol hypothesis, which was full steam ahead back in the early 80s. Right. And uh, and he published this thing, and published, I think it was self-published. But uh, there have been people that have questioned this data, not the data, because the data has been clear from the beginning, but have questioned the conclusions that have been drawn from the data. But the primary problem was Ansel Keys. And his seven nations study. And I think we discussed this the last time we talked about this. It was a it was clearly, clearly academic fraud is what it was. He the seven nations, guess which seven nations he pulled out? He pulled out having looked at twenty two nations, he pulled out the seven nations that seemed to back up his hypothesis and disregarded the rest of them. Now, that's not science, that's journalism. But yeah. Ansel Keys uh, had that that paper had a disproportionate effect on public policy and it has been a disaster ever since. You know, if if sugar is okay and saturated fat is not okay, you get diabetes and you get fat people and you get people who are unable to control their glycemic metabolism. And it's, it's just, it's just astonishing. So while we're talking about this in abstract terms, let's, let's, let's go back and restate the situation here. What does cholesterol do? Why is it important, and why is it not unsafe to have an elevated cholesterol level? Right. Well, again, the, the part of the problem is we use the word cholesterol, but you don't have any cholesterol in your bloodstream. 
because it's not soluble in blood and therefore it has to be carried around in a little sphere called a lipoprotein. So when we say cholesterol, we, we really mean lipoprotein. And the one that people are worried about is called the low-density lipoprotein. So to say you've got to raise cholesterol is always a nonsense because there's no such thing. But the terminology is confused and almost ridiculously so. So essentially, you can eat cholesterol. Um, egg yolks have got the highest, apart from I think um, shrimps or something. What we call them? You call we call them shrimps. You call them anyway. You call you know them prawns. I mean. We you call them shrimps. Well, we call them prawns, you call them shrimps. Yeah. I said, what's the difference? Well, it's just what they call them. Um, so you can eat cholesterol. Uh, if you had about 20 eggs, you would, through the egg yolks, you'd, you you would bring in about as, you'd consume about as much as your liver naturally synthesizes each and every day, which is about five grams. <laughs> so um, if you ate 20 eggs, your liver would say, well, thanks very much. I'll not bother producing the cholesterol anymore because I'm getting it from the diet. So the liver produces it, it's sent out, and actually not in low-density lipoprotein, it's sent out in very low, a thing called a very low-density lipoprotein, which you've probably also heard called a triglyceride. It's the same thing. For some reason, we don't call, uh, we don't call, anyway. Very low-density lipoproteins contain fat, and they contain cholesterol. They go out of the liver, they travel around, they lose their fat content, they shrink down, to become a low-density lipoprotein, which is, say, about a quarter of the size or something. And at that point, the liver then reabsorbs 99% of your LDL. A certain amount of it just still kicks around in your bloodstream. Cells that think they need cholesterol have a, have a receptor that pulls the LDL out of the bloodstream into the cell, where it's then broken down and the fats and the cholesterol are used for various functions. So Possibly when you the see the total cholesterol on your blood test, total cholesterol, yes. what total serum cholesterol is then, how is that measured? Well, it's, uh, it's measured in Basically, you measure, there's a lot of different lipoproteins in your bloodstream. There's a low-density lipoprotein, there's a high-density lipoprotein, there's very low-density lipoproteins, there's intermediate-density lipoproteins, and there's a thing called chylomicrons, which are even bigger and carry fat from your gut around your body. They don't tend to get measured. What you measure is the VLDL, the HDL, and the L. You don't measure the HDL generally. You measure all three, and you say that is your total cholesterol level, except because there's a lot more VLDL, you, you, you divide the VLDL by five. There's a thing called the Freibold equation. Don't bother going there. So actually, it's not really your total cholesterol. It's about a quarter of your total cholesterol. So you measure your HDL, your LDL, your VLDL. You, you look at the VLDL and the HDL, and when you've taken them away, what's left is assumed to be VL, it is assumed to be LDL. And that is the, the figure that you'll get. And in America, they use milligrams per deciliter. In Europe and the rest of the world, we use millimoles per liter. So in general, uh, a level of uh, 200-ish milligrams per deciliter right. is your total cholesterol level considered normal. All right. right, of that, about half of it will be LDL, approximately something like that, and the rest will be made up of other things. Now, HDL is also called good cholesterol, and LDL is called bad cholesterol. The idea that a, a chemical can be good and bad is interesting. And very scientific. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. So it's the, L, it's the LDL that the pharmaceutical industry are trying to lower with statins, 
and uh, and other things. Um, uh, and the others, they they're they're now beginning to get interested in VLDL because they've realised that, that that actually stepping back slightly, the VLDL goes up and the HDL goes down if you've got diabetes or insulin resistance. So they do that on you. So the gap between the two starts to widen. And uh, the relationship, the ratio between VLDL and HDL is actually quite important because it's telling you you have a problem with carbohydrate glucose metabolism and you've probably got diabetes. Um, but the LDL doesn't alter much in that situation. So it's, uh, it's uh, if you like, that's it. That, that, I'm trying to make it as simple as possible. But the interesting step, another step back, I, I did mention a thing called chylomicrons which if, uh, if an LDL was the size of a tennis ball uh, or, or uh, a baseball uh, and a VLDL was the size of a basketball, approximately, not quite, then a, a chylomicron would be the size of a big beach ball on the beach. It would be a huge, great thing. Um, and they get constructed in the guts. They get filled with fat if you eat fat and, and cholesterol because you can't absorb fat without cholesterol. And then they travel around, it travels around the body losing all of this fat and cholesterol, shrinking down until it becomes about the size of an LDL, at which point it's absorbed into the liver and broken down. So as you, from that, fat in the diet never actually becomes LDL. It has no relationship to it whatsoever. And, and so when you say to people, well, try to tell me how eating fat raises your LDL. What is the mechanism by which it happens? And there is no mechanism for it to happen. Right. It doesn't happen. So again, it's the I'll guarantee you speak to a thousand doctors. None of them will know any of this. They will not no. know no, any not. of this. You know, there are doctors. I mean, there are lots of doctors over here that are not qualified to operate a practice. But these people are of the opinion. They're, they're such simple people. They're, they're of the opinion that saturated fat in the diet ends up as saturated fat coating the inside of your arteries. Now, I, I don't, how did you get through your undergraduate program if you can't think any more clearly than that? How did you get into medical school? But here they are. Here they are. They just repeat these idiotic, biologically impossible things and tell their patients with the absolute confidence conferred by their authority as a doctor. And, oh, and you, you know, and, and people buy it because they themselves are uneducated. And after all, he is a doctor. Yes. And, uh, oh, my God. So cholesterol levels in the blood let's just say for for instance that we're going to look at total cholesterol levels in the blood and as i mentioned earlier the sweet spot the bottom of the reverse bell curve is at about 190 200 milligram per deciliter in terms yeah. of total mortality total mortality rises wildly with very low levels of total cholesterol. 120 is a dead man walking. And really, honestly, Malcolm, where 
does it become dangerous on the other end of this reverse bell curve? Over 300, or does it have to be over 500? Well, when that begins uh, to be associated I, 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 with a high total mortality. I did write a paper, well, actually, people with familiar, what's it called? Again, this is the terminology. People with genetic familial hypercholesterolemia, right. where they have a gene that uh, stops them from absorbing LDL from the blood. Um, and there's different reasons for that. But um, actually, if you look at the, the statistics on mortality, overall mortality, they they do not have a different... Um, they live exactly as long, and in some cases longer than people with <laughs> what you call normal cholesterol. Right. In fact, a group of us in research, we looked at this and, and found that there is a small subsection of people with familiar hypercholesterolemia who die young. Now that you can see statistics like there's a there's a fifty fold increase in the rate of death for people between the ages of twenty and thirty nine. Which again, this is the relative absolute risk. Hardly anyone dies of heart disease between the ages of twenty and thirty nine. And in fact, the, the study that that was based on comes from the UK. It's called the Simon Broom Registry, where they found people with familiar hypercholesterolemia and followed them up. And what they found was that the that, that, very young age group, there was a small subsection. This entire one fifty-fold increase in risk of heart disease comes from five patients dying. Five versus one. All right. That, that, that's it. So the absolute risk was very, very small. Once, once people with familiar hypercholesterolemia got past the age of 60, they lived longer and had less heart disease than other people. It's a bit like saying, well, if you smoke up to the age of 60, you'll get lung cancer. But after 60, actually, it protects you against lung cancer. It's just completely ridiculous. Anyway, so we said, well, there's something else going on here, which is, um, which is associated with some people, certain genetic subsets of, of, of familiar hypercholesterolemia. And it's actually a fascinating area because... It's all to do with blood clotting. Um, and some people, because the LDL receptor takes LDL out of the bloodstream, and then you say, well, that's what it does. It's like everything in the body, it does an awful lot of other things as well. It actually also removes factor eight from the bloodstream. It also has important other fact, uh, 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 mechanisms to do with blood coagulation. So it's much more likely that actually the lack of the LDL receptor is the thing that increases the risk of of cardiovascular disease rather than They're the presence the, of LDL. Uh, the LDL right. It's, it's the old argument of yellow fingers smoking lung cancer, which is people with yellow fingers are much more likely to die of lung cancer. Yes. It doesn't mean yellow fingers causes lung cancer. Mm -hmm. It means that people have yellow fingers because they smoke. We're saying people who have a high LDL level have, have, have reduced LDL receptor numbers and they have an increased risk of heart disease. Well, is it due to the raised LDL or is it due to the lack of LDL receptors, lack of LDL they have an important receptor. function in blood coagulation. Right. And and in fact, there is such people that have looked at it, um, and there's not been a lot of study in this area for obvious reasons. You can see also that certain aspects of the, take you back another stage, you, they've looked at twins, one of whom has had the gene for, for raised cholesterol, and one of whom has not had the gene for raised cholesterol, or, or they don't have the raised cholesterol. All right. And what they found is the rate of cardiovascular disease in these in these groups is the same, right? So there's something else causing their heart disease, nothing to do with this. So um, I think we made a very convincing case that no one's ever heard of, which is that it is not. With familiar hypercholesterolemia, you can get homozygous familiar hypercholesterolemia. It means you get both genes. 
which means that your LDL will be about 50. All right. Now, these people do, these people with this do die young and of heart disease. But when you look at what's actually happening to them, it's not anything like standard cardiovascular disease, we would call it. And equally, you could say, well, if you have any other substance in the blood that was 50 times, well, say 20 times normal, 30 times normal, you, you would be dead in about five minutes, let alone living until you're 30 or 40. So <laughs> that's an, there's about one, one in a million people have that. And there are, but the other, the other interesting thing about this group of people is if you find that someone's got homozygous, familiar hypercholesterolemia, and they have a liver transplant, which has been done, that their familiar hypercholesterolemia instantly disappears. <laughs> It'll go back to normal straight away. <laughs> it's fascinating, I think. But anyway, that's a slight side effect. But no, so, um, no, familiar hypercholesterolemia does not mean you will live one day shorter. In fact, in the Netherlands, they did a study by a guy called Cybrands et al. Uh, and they looked back historically, because if you obviously have got a genetic condition that affects 50% of people, you can go back through the, the, the records and look at tombstones, how long did people live and all this, and they did that. And they found that in the 19th century, people with familiar hypercholesterolemia lived longer than average. From about 1900 to about 1950, people with familiar hypercholesterolemia had an increased risk of death compared to the surrounding population. And since then, it's been the same. So there's been obviously interesting environmental factors involved well, in all in of fact, this. But hard to but tease the, those but, out, but, I'm sure. Sorry. Hard to tease those well, out. Well, uh, they also did a study in in, uh, in, uh, in in the Netherlands, which was never published. Because normally, what you do is you get someone who's got familiar hypercholesterolemia and they have a heart attack and they arrive at hospital, right? And then they say, "Well, let's look at all your relatives." Okay. Oh, look, there's an increased risk of cardiovascular disease in your relatives with hypercholesterolemia. Okay. So again, it's the yellow fingers thing. Was it was it the raised um, LDL or was there something else affecting you? Because you're all related. It could be that you've all got ginger hair or something. Um, so what they did instead was that they went to the universities in, in the Netherlands and said, um, how many of you have a, a, a relative that's had premature heart disease? Right? In other words, we're not looking for people with heart disease. We're trying to find people without heart disease at that age and saying which of your relatives had a heart attack, then trying to find out how many of these people had familiar hypercholesterolemia. So they did it the right way around. And what they found was there was no association between genetic familiar hypercholesterolemia in the family and the rate of cardiovascular deaths, premature cardiovascular deaths. In fact, they found slightly, it was slightly lower. And this study, the only reason I know about this study was I was reading a, a, a letter in the British Medical Journal about 30 years ago. And someone mentioned it uh, as, as saying, well, actually, that's not true because of blah, blah, blah. So I contacted him and said, that's interesting. I said, why didn't you publish this study? Because it contradicts everything we've heard about familiar hypercholesterolemia. Mm -hmm. And he went, uh, what he said was something, but what, what I heard was, blah 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 thank you goodbye because that is what he said to me in effect he didn't want to talk about it no he did not want to talk did about not it. want to talk about it he someone had a word it. with him didn't they they did and then i looked at another study in the uk which was fascinating where they um same same effect where they they got all the data data from a half a million patients in general practice 
in the UK, we've got a fantastic data set in the UK from general practice for years and years. And they looked at uh, 54 factors to do with causing heart disease, some of which were very loosely related. Things like FEV and you know, forced respiratory volume and things like this. Um, and out of the 54 factors that they found, when you looked at LDL, it, it came 52nd out of 54. <laughs> um, and the relative risk or the absolute risk or any form of risk the way you want to look at it was 1.001. So they could find no association between LDL and cardiovascular death risk in 500,000 patients. Well, and now that's study, rather interesting, isn't it? What is uh, What cholesterol level would be associated with an actual increase in cardiovascular death? What would yes. be the total cholesterol? Well, it'd be, it would affect, well there isn't one. Really. There, is, there really isn't one, is there? So if you're there walking around at 500, yeah. they're going to put you on a statin. Well, of course they are, yeah. yeah. But... Yeah. What is yeah. really the 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 downside of walking around at five hundred? And there isn't one. Well, well, there isn't one. I mean, I spoke to uh, a chap. He actually contacted me and said, "My my uh, mine, mine is seven hundred on LDL. Uh, he's seventy years old." And uh, I said, "Blimey." Um, he well, I didn't say blimey, but he said, "I've been investigated because it was really high. I've been investigated for forty years or something." Um, and I've been put on various things, and none of them have ever worked, and they made me feel terrible. But I have no detectable cardiovascular disease at all anywhere in my body, all right? Because they scanned them and looked at them. And and, and 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 I sort of thought, well, people write to me. You never quite know if someone's a, a loony tune or not. But then he sent me the paper that had been written about him, all right? And uh, the conclusion of the study was that something else must be protecting him from his high LDL level. <laughs> and I we just can't assume that there's nothing wrong with a high LDL level. <laughs> I know. And I wrote to the authors and said, well, what, what, here's another explanation for you. Nothing was protecting him because it doesn't cause heart disease. Because it doesn't that's cause heart disease. Well, that's the first he'd heard of that. Uh, yes. Malcolm, let's, let's talk about the differences between males and females with respect to elevated cholesterol. Yeah. Well, is there an association yeah. in women between elevated cholesterol and heart disease? Okay. Well, again, and, uh, again, there can't be, can there? No, well, it's the same as with men. There isn't one. Um, and it's uh, just that that's just a fact. Women tend to have higher LDL levels than men, not usually, but about five to ten percent higher. Right. Now I had a. I, I may have told you this last time we spoke about this, but I had a, I got a buddy I went to high school with who, at the time, this is this is ten or twelve years ago. Uh, his his nineteen year old daughter had gone to the doctor about something, and uh, for some bizarre reason they did blood on her, and she came back with. A, a serum cholesterol, a total serum cholesterol, two fifteen, and they wanted to put her on a statin. Now, Malcolm, what is the word for this? That that well, word is what, 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 what's malpractice. The word, what, 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 isn't it? Yes, 
What's the word you're allowed to use? Yeah, yeah. Uh, well, the, the, the real word is malpractice. The, yeah. the, the word that would be preferred would be an overabundance of caution. Right? And so that's, how, that's how upside down things are at this point. Things are so thoroughly ass upside down with this statin thing. The only thing that makes any sense is step back and look at this whole thing from a global perspective. And what you are looking at is the money. That's all you can say is the money is what drives this thing. And these soulless pieces of shit do not care how you feel. They want you to take your statins because at this point in time and this is going to sound horrible but i don't really care the 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 most especially gps the general practice physicians that are often responsible for writing all of this shit are the frontline representatives of the pharmaceutical companies that's who they work for i you know that's ugly but Tell me I'm wrong. Well, I think well, I'm not going to. Depends how you, you phrase these things, but if you speak to most general family practitioners, being one, they they think they're doing good. They are convinced they're doing good. Unfortunately, they're not doing the good that they hope they're doing. They don't. They, you know, they never consider themselves to be. You know. So in the UK, we we prescribe these things in Australia. You don't you don't get paid. Well, you get paid a very no, small no. Amount. You don't get paid by yeah. you don't receive a check from Pfizer. No, that's not no. what I'm saying. But the system is in place, and the pharmaceutical companies rely on general practice physicians to write their products. Yes, and and that is whether the guys that write the products get paid or not, they stay in business because the people that come into their offices expect to leave with a prescription. Yeah. Now I was uh, on the way home the other night. I've, you know, in, in the United States, uh, pharmaceutical advertising comprises a huge percentage of advertising revenue for all of the media a huge percentage about six months ago i started hearing advertisements uh public service announcements sounding advertisements by a pharmaceutical company that was alerting everyone to the presence of a disease called exocrine pancreatic insufficiency now, your, your doctor may not recognize the symptoms of exocrine pancreatic insufficiency and may decide that you've got something else wrong with you. And, you know, exocrine secretions from the pancreas are, are that's the yellow stuff. If you've really ever, you know, gotten real, real sick from drinking too much and you threw up until you got to the green stuff, that's the bile and then you continued to throw up and dry heave and you got down to the yellow stuff. That's the pancreatic juice. Some of you are familiar with this. I am. And 
if your pancreas, apparently, if you have exocrine pancreatic insufficiency, your pancreas does not make enough enzymes, and these enzymes are, are aid in protein and fat metabolism, and these things are secreted normally into the, into the large intestine. Right at the top, right past the duodenum. Well, that's the small intestine. So right past the duodenum, there's the common bile duct drops in there, and that's where you're, that's where all of this stuff goes in. They are essentially advertising a disease. And then they ran those spots for about two months, three months, and then they started advertising the medication they had developed. And I am not lying. They advertised the disease for three months, and then they started advertising the medication for the disease. This is, this is evil. This is unfa- This is, and it is. I, I, they must have conferences. Well, in, in, you know, in Davos or someplace at some resort in Europe, and they must have conferences. And the conferences is, how stupid is the general public? What can we get away with selling to the general public because they are stupid enough to buy it? And how far will the GPs go along with us in our attempt to sell this shit to the general public? Right. And this had to be, this has to have been discussed at that level. Well, they code it in things. Uh, they don't, they're never quite as whatever. But I mean, I mean, the doctors, we, we ought to be um, the barrier to the stuff. Yes. We, we ought, yeah. we ought to be. Instead of the gateway. I mean, I, I've, I mean, pancreatic excrement insufficiency. I know it exists in. Um, if you have cystic fibrosis, then your your pancreas doesn't produce enough uh, enzymes, or can't secrete them because they're all sticky. Which is why I get sticky lungs. It's the same thing, and um, uh, and then you have to take the various creons and things like that. I wasn't aware. Uh, you even <laughs> I'll have to go and look it up now that there was such a disease as pancreatic excrement insufficiency that affected anybody else. Um, um, well, it may not know, affect anybody else, but if you've well, got, not, if you heard the spot, you heard the advertisement, and you show up at the GP's office and say, "Doctor, I'm just feeling bad. You know, I've just, you know, I'm constipated. Every once in a while, I get diarrhea, and I think maybe I've got exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. Can you write some Creon for me?" And what's yeah. the guy going to say? What he ought to say well, is get out of my it, office. We, we have become, and I've written about this, which is that, that there was a time when an, a doctor could kind of do pretty much what they wanted, which might not have been a great thing for certain, but increasingly uh, that you are, you're constrained by, by guidelines, and, and the guidelines are created by the opinion leaders, and the opinion leaders are paid for by well not paid for they are effective they are paid for by the they pharmaceutical are, industry they are paid for by the pharmaceutical industry. and uh, so essentially it's, it's it's become a, a conveyor belt of this is a, this is the disease this is you must do this and if you don't do this if you go if you go like me and say look this is bullshit you know I'm sorry but I I, I just know this is bullshit that you are you're very much in danger of, of getting struck off losing your license to practice and that's the end of you so you know as it was an American politician whose name I can't remember, but I love the quote. It's uh, 
it's very difficult to convince, uh, to get a man to understand something if his livelihood depends on him not understanding it. <laughs> I've heard that quote, and I can't remember who it is, but yes, yeah. I've heard that. Uh, he's the same one. He's the same politician who said that uh, because he lost. He was in California, and I think uh, governor. He said that the the, the people have spoken. The bastards. <laughs> <laughs> Would that have been Ronald Reagan? I don't think he Ronald talked Reagan. like that, did he? <laughs> it was a bit like that. It was before Ronald Reagan, I think. Oh. I like. I do. I, I think I like that politician. I like. This, I like the kind of a jip, as they say. But no, it, it, it and it has become. And also, you know, it used to be the case that that you know in Germany they did medicine in one way, that, and and in Britain they did it another way, and Russia they did it another way, and. South America did it, and there were different groups of people. Nowadays, it's become globalized. Everybody around the whole world, it's the same everywhere. So right. there's no, there's nowhere to go and find a group of people who are doing things differently because right. there is no group, there is no country. It's become absolutely globalized. They have these big international conferences, and they have. It's just there's nowhere to go. So I mean, it, right. it, it, that's another issue is is that there isn't a place where, you know, doctors do stuff differently. It just Germany's probably the most different from anywhere else in that they still seem to follow a certain degree of fact and logic. But, but well, the, I mean, yeah, over yeah. here, I don't I don't know about the UK, but it it uh, along the lines of what you're saying, everybody here that has a doctor who's your doctor well i don't have a doctor but if if you've got a doctor which means a gp a family practice physician then you are on a statin you are on a blood pressure medication you are possibly on an ssri and you have been vaccinated against the deadly covid-19 virus five or yeah. six times because that's just what we do that's yes. what we do if you're you show up you could show up to the doctor's office and you and and they'll never have the right size cuff if you've got a bigger arm and on the basis of one blood pressure reading by this guy's lvn you can leave the office with a lisinopril prescription just by virtue of the fact that they took your blood pressure one time and the nurse doesn't even know how to take blood pressure. The equipment is wrong. Everything about still your, your, your blood pressure is high. We've got to medicate that. And are, are you, are you experiencing any digestive problems? Well, you've got exocrine pancreatic insufficiency. We're going to write you some Creon and, oh, and you need a statin of course, because your cholesterol is 205 and, and, you know, and all of a sudden, you're polypharma. Yeah. You know, and that's the norm. That's the norm. Well, it, Probably it, it the norm been, in the UK. Yeah. It, well, it, we, you know, where America leads, we abjectly follow. Although I think, actually, uh, to tell you the truth, um, when it comes to polypharmacy, I think we might be sneaking ahead of you. Um, so there. We, <laughs> well, we'll catch and, up. Uh, we have the, to do the, something the about that. <laughs> yeah, you're you're not doing, and and then we look at you know countries, 
and you say, what's what's the best indicator of overall health? And you say, life expectancy, probably, you know, pediatric or child mortality. But, you know, life expectancy is falling in the UK. It's falling in the US. Mm-hmm. And it's like, well, it can't have anything to do with the stuff that we're doing, obviously, because it just oh, can't. No, no, it's just our, our when, gene when pool is shit, right? Yeah, that happens we in 10 years. <laughs> we had a thing called QAF, Quality Outcome Framework, which I was a hill upon which I almost died because I was part of the anyway, committees at that time when they were going to introduce this, which was if here's a hundred here, here's money we're going to give you and there's all these things you've got to do you've got to measure the people's weight their, their blood sugar and the blood cholesterol blah 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 and you get paid for doing these things and then if the cholesterol is this you get paid for doing that and this and that and mm-hmm. it basically was oh, this is this is institutionalized polypharmacy yes. all right yeah and i said well you know uh, uh and she, so even if you believe all the clinical trials on the individual drugs which I don't, but I didn't say that. Uh, providing a benefit, which is like this size, it's, it's, has anyone done a study where you're on four medications and you add a fifth, and what the, what happens then? Or when you're on five medications, you add a sixth, or when you're six medications, you add a seventh. Right. There comes a point, there must come a point, where where the interactions and problems of these drugs outweighs any possible benefit. I said I don't know where that point is for sure. I, nobody does, and the fact is that nobody does. So what you're doing is you're creating mass polypharmacy in that based on no evidence whatsoever. I know an old man who is on 10 medications. He's on 10 different medications. And last year he had a TIA uh, right in front of us. He had a TIA. They wife came and got him. Went to the doctor, and now he's on eleven medications. Uh, well, one of the units yeah. where I still work, they they have a, a drug chart. It's kind of like a cottage hospital or a small hospital. Anyway, um, they the space there's space on the the Wardex for sixteen medications, right? 16, sixteen different medications, and and fifty. Last time I looked, fifty percent of the patients needed two Wardexes. So 50% were on more than 16 medications. You know, how anyone at any level, anyone at any level of of decision-making capacity within this system can think that is a good idea. It's the well, money. We've, we've, it's we've the become, money. It's all in the hell it is. Well, in these cases, the, the trouble is once it's happened, it never comes off. No. So, I, you know, the, the, the statins aren't making huge amounts of money. But, no, I mean, uh, everyone is, everyone is, uh, they did a study, one study I've seen where it was actually done in Israel where they, it was in a nursing home, where they tried to stop all possible medications that the patients were on. So if someone was on insulin, they didn't stop that. If someone, you know, if someone was was was, was had, had a, a stroke or a heart attack, they didn't stop the anticoagulation. Anyway, right. they reduced the medication down as much as they could. All right, and they found that the mortality rate went down by, off the top of my head, seventy <laughs> percent. Now, 
Um, <laughs> it, it is. It, it, well, it, it's kind of. I mean, I tend to be quite, or well, come across as quite light-hearted because, well, because well, I am anyway. This is my general demeanor, but, but, but also because people listen to you more. I think if they think it sounds like a nice guy and. And he's not too intense and he's not scaring me and he's not frightening the children by saying really nasty things. But there are times and I start to think about this stuff. And I I really, you know, I mean, it's one of the reasons that I took on this libel case was that we, people, some, people have to stand up. Somebody and, has to say something about this. Yeah. You know, and if it's not and me, that's why I like having you on the podcast yeah. here, because for lots and lots of people that are listening to this show, and we've got 267,000 uh, subscribers on YouTube. We, I, I don't, we haven't gotten near that many that watch the whole entire podcast, but we've got thousands and thousands of downloads of the audio podcast because they're free. We've got, uh, we are making a dent at some level and for a lot of people this is the first time they've ever heard a credible source say that there is nothing wrong with an elevated cholesterol level well that's blasphemy to to lots and lots of people it's obviously blasphemy to the to the to the mainstream media you know and this is this is the first time they've ever had a chance to to listen to this argument and maybe Instead of killing people, maybe we're saving some lives. Well, I can only hope so. Uh, you know, someone said to me, you change the world one conversation at a time. And, you know, you, you, uh, and, and a lot of people said, why do you bother with all this? Why are you bothering? You know, it's like, and, uh, there's a part of me says, you're right. I'm just going to go down to pub and I'm going to have a drink. Um, right. Well, I do that anyway. But um, <laughs> there's, another part, there's, there's another part that says, and some people seem to like this as an idea. I said, you know, in the Middle Ages, and they used to build cathedrals, and they took 400 years to build or whatever. So when you say to someone what you're doing, they don't say, well, I'm putting one brick on top of another. You say, I'm building a cathedral. Right? This is a cathedral that's going to be here. It'll be fantastic. I may not live ever to see it built. In fact, I won't live to see it because it just won't happen. But no, I know but, I'm doing but something. But you laid some stones. And that that's, I think, sort of how I try and see it, which is, well, I wouldn't like to go at my deathbed and say, you know what? I wish I'd said something. I wish I hadn't kept my traps yet. I wish I hadn't been a coward. I wish I hadn't been, an, uh, you know. Um, so at least success or not, disaster from doing it or not, um, I, I like to think that that, that, that that maybe I'm not right about everything. Of course, I'm not right about everything. But I like to think I'm, I have made an effort. Well, you know, we uh, appreciate you. And uh, I hope to talk to you again in the near future. Keep us posted on this. On this. Well, it's Bible happening in, in. It's happening at the beginning of July, at least in theory. It's happening then. I tend to find what lawyer when lawyers say things no, about time. They may delay like, it, but at at some point it's going to come up, and at some point yeah. somebody's going to have to make a decision about something. So yes. that's good. That's good. And yeah, no, if we no. can alert the general public to the ideas 
that we are talking about here that maybe their doctor is telling them the wrong thing. Maybe their assumptions are incorrect. Maybe they need to look this stuff up for themselves. That's the most important conclusion somebody listening to this podcast could arrive at, that I need to be more familiar with the information myself, and I need to stop listening to what other people who I regard as professionals are telling me because they're probably wrong. And you are intelligent enough to draw your own conclusions if you get the information in front of you. That's what we're saying to you people watching this podcast right now. Don't, because your GP tells you a thing, remember over the past three years how they were wrong about every fucking thing they said over the past three years? Remember how you were lied to by the CDC and the FDA and the pharmaceutical manufacturers and everybody involved in this whole entire process over the past three years? Learn something from that, okay? Learn something from that. You're not stupid. You can evaluate things for yourself. And then if you think that you need to be on a statin, then get on a statin. But if you realize that the fact that the statins that you're on after five days made you feel like shit, remember that? And that you think maybe that is a significant thing to pay attention to, then get off of them, right? Because your cholesterol doesn't need to be lowered. And you don't need to be taking 10 different medications every day. All right? Malcolm, thank you so much for joining us again. I I appreciate you every time you decide to come on the podcast. Everybody learned something, and everybody's made to think about things they need to think about. Thank you. Thank you, sir. And thank you guys for joining us on Starting Strength Radio. We'll see you next time.